So tonight we will uh, begin our, begin our um, brief series in the Psalms, and so uh, usually when we end a book uh, uh, of the Bible, we'll spend a little bit of time in the Psalms and uh, slowly working our way through it. It's, uh, it's the, I like to think of it as the longest running uh, um, book series that I have going as a pastor at our church because it's been going for about mm, 10 years. So, <laughs> so like, how long you been in Psalms? 10 years. All right, just tell, just, and don't explain anymore. Just let them assume that we've been doing Psalms every, every Sunday for 10 years. Um, but, uh, um, but we are in Psalm 80. And we'll probably spend about 10 Sundays or so uh, uh, working through the Psalms. And then, um, and then I believe we're going to be moving into Galatians after that. So I like to move from Old Testament to New Testament and kind of refresh us with a different genre of scriptures. And uh, uh, it's always fun to go to the letters where Paul yells at people. So that's, uh, that's always good. So, and he just does, you right out the gate in Galatians, he's just like, y'all are fools, all right, and let me tell you why, so, um, uh, so we'll go get yelled at Paul soon enough, but for now, we are going to spend uh, several weeks in the book of Psalms. Tonight, we'll be in Psalm ch- uh, chapter 80, and we will be looking at the entire Psalm, which is 19 verses, so we'll be, I'll bring the text up on the screen, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, hear the word of the Lord. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, took deep root and it filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, Look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you have made strong for yourself. They burned it with fire, they have cut it down, may they perish at the rebuke of your face, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it richly to his people, to all who will receive it. 
So as we spend time in the Psalms, uh, once again, we are brought to a, uh, a, a special type of psalm, uh, not a psalm of praise, but a psalm of lament. Uh, but it is a special kind of lament. It is a, uh, and, and we re- re- uh, recall that a lament is a, essentially a poetic song of sorrow, expressing sadness, uh, and, but this particular one does contain praise, but it also contains cries for restoration and revival. And uh, I was certainly thinking about this as um, the choir this morning was singing about uh, revive the church today. Our country has seen uh, two great revivals that we like to call the first and great awakenings. And indeed they were. Uh, the church had uh, dipped regularly into the single digits in its church attendance, and worldliness was rampant. I have to say that's one fact that I didn't forget from that, uh, that, I, that I will not forget from that um, uh, Presbyterianism, not Presbyterian, American Christianity series that we did on Sunday mornings, and uh, Stephen Nichols, Dr. Stephen Nichols, who was teaching, and he was highlighting how, how in the 1790s church attendance was nine percent nine percent of people were going to church in the 1790s back in the good old days right we could just go back to the good old days when people went to church (laughs) Um, but one might think when i talk about single digit church attendance and rampant worldliness i was only thinking about talking about today but i will tell you that i have not met a christian to this day To whom, if I were to say, we really need revival in the church, they would not respond with a hearty amen. But what do we mean by revival? The Great Awakenings may have similar names, but they could not have been more different in their approach to revival. The first Great Awakening uh, was uh, experienced revival essentially through the means of grace, through the through the administration of the sacraments, the, the preaching and the teaching of the word of God and the, and, and the, and the spirit broke forth. And, and of course, prayer, saturated prayer. And, and, and the spirit broke forth and revival broke out. Uh, this, the second great awakening brought, was, uh, brought about uh, awakening, a spiritual, Christian spiritual awakening to be sure, but it came through not the means of grace, but through the implementation of what uh, Charles Finney called the new measures. That uh, the idea that if you implement these new measures, these, these new schemes, these new uh, ways, then you could, in, in effect, manufacture revival. And uh, now I would submit to you that God worked through both great awakenings to great good in, uh, in our country. Uh, but at the end of the day, I would also argue that one awakening was qualitatively better than the other in terms of its approach. And we need to consider this because... Uh, We do indeed need the work of God in our midst, in the church. We need restoration. We need revival. But if we approach approach it without defining our terms, if we approach it effectively carelessly or thoughtlessly, then we will end up seeking out things that are actually unbiblical and unhelpful uh, for the church in the long run. 
Recently, there was a pastor of a very large, um, big mega church that was uh, chastising his people um, for showing up 10 minutes late and leaving 10 minutes early so they could so they could go get the buffet or whatever it was so they could get out and 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 for treating church like a show he did this while standing in front of a screen that was as big as from here to the ceiling and projections of himself on multiple screens and um and and it, and it was the type of church and 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 the and i couldn't help but think that maybe they treat it like a show because the church treats it like a show. Maybe they treat it like entertainment because the church treats it and presents it like entertainment. And so it is treated as such. And so what do we mean by revival? It matters how we approach these things, how we define these things. And so as we, as we consider the word of God tonight and what the cry for revival is, uh, we must pay close attention to how the author describes what this restoration means and what it entails. And as we do, we will see that the cry for restoration is effectively a cry for salvation. And secondly, that the cry for restoration is a cry for God to tend to his vine, to act upon his people. And so first, the, we see that the cry for restoration uh, is a cry for salvation in verses 1 through 7. And really, uh, but a large portion of these first seven verses are focused on who it is that we're crying out to. And so, and so we see that when we cry out for restoration, first of all, we cry out to the exalted shepherd in verses 1 and 2. The author of this psalm uses several names for God. He calls him Yahweh, he, uh, or the Lord in all caps, you know, and he, he refers to him multiple times as the God of hosts, that, that military might term uh, and title for God. Uh, and uh, he calls him the shepherd of Israel. The shepherd leads his people. But this is no ordinary shepherd. He, this is the shepherd that sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Now, the, the idea of, of God sitting enthroned upon the cherubim would have brought to mind to the Israelite the Ark of the Covenant. Upon the lid were two golden cherubim whose wings there, uh, were, were there, and it represented uh, the, the, the kingly presence of God in the midst of his people. The, the Ark of the Covenant itself it was called the footstool of the throne of God where he effectively was sitting and resting his feet. And, and, and of course, his throne is in heaven. And so, but he set his footstool in the midst of his people. And, and so the Ark of the Covenant, the reference to it here is, is a reference to God's presence with his people to guide, protect, and bless them. Now, he also mentions, he says, he says that he shepherds Joseph. Uh, and, and then later on, he, met, he mentions uh, Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And, uh, along, and he throws in Benjamin in there for good measure. And, but, and so what's clear is he is referring to the tribes of Israel, particularly the tribes who sit just north of Judah. And, and because of that, because of the timing of this psalm, um, the, the, the call for God here uh, as the shepherd of Israel to stir up his might and save reveals something terrible is happening in their midst. 
and, and given the way that he describes these tribes and their situation, it's very likely that he's referring to the Assyrian invasion and exile of the northern tribes just north of Judah. And, and, and that is interesting, and we'll, we'll come back to it to be sure, but it is the title here of, that he uses that should grab our attention. That in this terrible situation of Assyrian exile, that the psalmist decides, he decided that what is truly needed was of all the titles that God could, ho- could have, that what he needed was the shepherd of Israel. To call upon God as our shepherd is to acknowledge implicitly that we are his sheep it is then and and i don't know if you've i mean it's 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 true back then as it is now it's not a compliment necessarily to say i'm a sheep okay Uh, because it's a humbling thing the very least it's not it's not necessarily an insulting thing but it's a humbling thing because to say i am a sheep and 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 i have a shepherd is to is to humble myself before the shepherd and acknowledge that he has the right to shepherd me and what does shepherding entail? Well, it involves protecting, guiding, even disciplining the sheep, dealing with the sheep when they start fighting with each other. Uh, now, that sounds all clean and nice as long as you don't think about it too much. But shepherding is dirty, messy work. But God has committed himself to be the shepherd of Israel. And his son in the New Testament, Jesus, identified himself as the good shepherd who knows his sheep who never loses his sheep, and who calls his sheep into the fold, his sheep who always hear his voice. And so when we cry out for restoration today, we must begin by addressing God as the good shepherd of the church, who indeed sits enthroned on high. And our prayer is, as the psalmist says, for that he would shine forth, that, it, that the light of the shepherd would illuminate our hearts and minds as his people and all those who are caught in darkness, and that as sheep we would return to him. And so we cry out to the exalted shepherd, but we also, we see, cry out to the sovereign covenant king in verses 4 through 6. The psalmist then addresses God as Yahweh, the God of hosts. He uses the covenant personal name uh, of the only true God who saved unto himself a people and covenanted with them to be their God and for them to be his own. He is also referred to as the God of hosts, the God of military might and power. None can stay the hand of God. None can withstand him when he determines to save or to judge. And we find out, judge he has. The psalmist reveals that the hardship of the exile has come at the hand of their God. He's angry with his people. Their food and drink have been tears in full measure. They are now the laughingstock of the nations surrounding them. They are defeated and weak in the eyes of the world. This is why the psalmist wants God to spring into action. When I think about, because he describes how, well, later on he'll describe that, that, the weakness in terms of the vine that, that's being ravaged, right? That's being plucked. So anybody passing by, plucked. And so when I was um, uh, in middle school, I would walk uh, to school. So I get to tell those stories to my kids. I used to walk to school uphill both ways. So 
No, but it wasn't uphill, but it was in the, it was in the desert heat of, uh, of Southern California. And, uh, but we did have lots of orange groves. And, and you could um, take a shortcut through the orange grove to the back of one of the neighborhoods. And, and, that would, and so when it was really hot, it was nice to walk through the orange groves in the shade of the orange groves. And, so, um, and then you could also pick oranges, all right? Um, now, you shouldn't do that, okay? They're not your oranges, but it doesn't mean that we didn't. And doesn't mean that we didn't have a very sticky orange fight. Uh, we only used the oranges that were already on the ground. Just want to highlight, just highlight that. Um, but we also knew if anybody caught us, they would shoot us with salt rifles. <laughs> that didn't kill, but they would sting like crazy. <laughs> and I don't know if they actually did that. That's just what we that we had heard, <laughs> and we didn't want to confirm. You know, you don't want to go into the store and ask, will you shoot us with salt rifles if we steal your oranges? So, um, uh, but we knew that it was protected. Now, if it was unprotected, if there was no consequence at all, if there was no threat of salt rifles or being arrested or anything like that, then everyone would take the oranges, right? And that's how they describe themselves here. Open to just anybody coming by, taking whatever they want, and no one can stop them. And that's how, that's how Israel feels right now. That's how the psalmist feels. It's vulnerability, weakness. And this is why the psalmist wants God to spring into action. He desires God to shine forth in the darkness. He desires for God to respond positively once again to the prayers of, his, of their people. This is because the psalmist correctly understands that of all the needs that they have right now, which are many, he just laid out a pretty bleak situation, but he knows their greatest need is God. He's the one that they need. They are not going anywhere. Things are not going to get better with, without him. It's like Moses saying to God, if you don't go with us, then it's better not that we go anywhere. You might as well just stay right here. Because if you don't go with us, we can't go anywhere. Charles Spurgeon wrote that our greatest dread is the withdrawal of the Lord's presence. And our brightest hope is the prospect of his return. And so the psalmist invokes the covenant name of God in the context of a title concerning his power to deliver him, asking him, how long, O Lord? Because he expects this, the covenant-keeping God to turn once again to his people in compassion and restore them. And, and, and he knows that once the Lord responds, salvation will come. And when we cry out to God for revival, let us address him not only as our shepherd, but also as our covenant king. Of all the needs that we have in the church right now as an individual church, as a denomination, at the needs that we have now as a church that lives in our state of Mississippi, in our country, and the current moral insanity that, that so much of our country has been plunged into, the, our, need, our greatest need right now as the people of God is not the 2024 election. It is God. He is what we need. We need him in our midst. We need him in our midst because when we cry out to God for restoration, what we are really crying out for, as the psalmist identifies, is we are crying out for saving repentance through God's blessed countenance. That's a mouthful. We are, we are crying out for God's saving repentance through his blessed countenance. And why do I say that? Well, the whole frame 
of this psalm is repeated in verse 3, 7, and 19. Three times the writer calls upon God to restore the people of God. Now that word restore is the Hebrew word shuv, which means to turn, to return, or to repent. This is important because, again, this is the very structure of this psalm. It's what, I, it's what makes it clear to us that this psalm is about restoration. It's about revival in the church. Because here's the thing. We may misinterpret what the psalmist means by restore. We might think that the psalmist is asking for them to be restored back to their former glory, to go back to the good old days, to bring the people back, to put the enemies who have harmed them underfoot. And certainly there are aspects of that. Certainly the psalmist desires those things. But that is not what he means by using this word. Because his cry for restoration is not a cry for God to rebuild buildings and cities or reputations nearly as much as it is crying out to God for him to do a great work in the hearts of his people. When he says, restore us, he is saying, turn us. Return us to you, O God. Turn us back to you. And further, see how the light in verses 3, 7, and 19, see how the light of the face of God is the salvation of his people. Shine forth that we may be saved. If the Lord shines, we will be saved. That's the logic here. The very concept of blessing is the, the picture of blessing. It's God smiling upon his people. And the picture of curse is God turning his face away. And that's, you know, that's the picture we talk about. We even have a song that we sing about Jesus on the cross, and it says he turns his face away, right, as Christ becomes a curse for his people. We may be fallen in darkness and death, but it is the blessed countenance of God that brings light. Another hymn we sing contains the line, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. In one sense, when we, pl when we pray for restoration and revival, we're praying, of course, for the conversion of new believers to be brought into the fold of God. But in another sense, we are praying for God to do a work in his people who already belong to him. For like Israel, we can bear the name of Christ, we can bear his signs upon our bodies, his words upon our lips, yet we can still be very worldly in our actions, in our attitudes. And this is why one, uh, one actually I think it was a monk who wrote this hundreds of years ago about, uh, about this very concept. He says, to thyself convert us from the earthly to the heavenly. Convert our rebellious wills to thee, and when we are converted, show thy countenance that we may know thee. Show thy power that we may fear thee. Show thy wisdom that we may reverence thee. Show thy goodness that we may love thee. Show them once. Show them a second time. Show them always that through tribulation we may pass with a happy face and be saved. 
When thou dost save, we shall be saved. And when thou withdrawest thy hand, we cannot. Prayer for restoration for the church today is not merely a prayer for others to join us and be good people like us. It is a prayer for God to draw us and others unto himself, to deepen us in the love of Christ, to deepen us in the wonder and glory and awe of God, that we may be strengthened in Christ. And so the cry of rest for restoration is essentially a cry for salvation. Secondly, we see in verses 8 through 19 that the cry for restoration is a cry for God to act upon his people. And in this psalm, beginning in verse 8, the, the psalmist adopts a familiar metaphor in the Bible for the people of God, which is a vine. It's a very familiar imagery, especially when you get to the prophets of God planting and, and watering and growing and, uh, and also of him uprooting. And so, and so we have this picture of the vine, and, and the psalmist gives us both the history of the vine and the need of the vine. And so in verses 8 through 13, we are given the history of the vine. Uh, briefly, the author recounts the, the history of Israel, going back to the Exodus and the promised land, and, a, and this picture of God bringing out a vine and planting it in fertile soil. It spread and spread, he says, and filled the land. Its roots ran deep. They ran far and wide and deep and, 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 it, and flourished. The vine was planted. It was thriving. And this was a very picture of God's sovereign covenant blessing on Israel, his people. It's important to know that this picture of God bringing the vine out of Egypt clearing the ground for it, the, the vine spreading, giving shade to the surrounding areas, and it involves the care of the vine dresser, which is God. And by God's providence, it involves military conquest and miracles and his divine mercy. As the psalmist reflects on this brief history, he confesses his consternation, his confusion as to what's going on. If God has planted this, this, this vine and it grew and it grew to this huge, wonderful, glorious uh, uh, position and place, then why has he brought such devastation to it? The vine has been ravaged, he says, by the boar from the forest. And everyone who wants to eat of the vine can do so without consequence, like Eric and his friends in middle school in the Orange Grove. The question of why is not always helpful, but it does always arise, right? The question of why is not always helpful, but it does always come. Why, God? Why has this happened? And sometimes the answer to why is simply God's hidden will for all things. And we just don't know the answer. Sometimes we get a bit, a, a bit of taste of Job's life, where we experience the bitter realities of living in a fallen world. And we are never given a clear answer about why this thing happened or that thing happened, this catastrophe occurred or this tragedy occurred. But in this case, the case of the Assyrian uh, exile of the northern kingdom. The answer is very clear. It is divine discipline. Israel had abandoned the Lord, not by outrightly denying him, 
but by watering down their faith and mixing it with the religions of the surrounding areas. They claimed to still follow Yahweh, but did not know his law, and they violated God's commands and called it good. And God warned them again and again by the prophets, but they would not listen, and they certainly would not repent. They would even kill the prophets that warned them and confronted them. And so now God is getting their attention through pain and suffering and exile. But the question of why, while it's not always helpful in resolving the existential angst and, 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 and wrestling that we're going through, it, it, it may help us to see the remedy uh, it, uh, that, that we actually need. And so it, it won't remedy the problem, but it may clarify our need for us, which the author does here in verses 14 and 19. He moves from the history of the vine to the need of the vine. And the need of the vine... Uh, we, uh, uh, we, we see that because the psalmist, he states with more clarity the current state of affairs in Israel. They are the vine that he has planted. They are the branch or the sun that he has made strong. But the vine has been burned with fire and cut down by the enemy. He then prays for God's righteous judgment to fall upon the enemy who has done this to them. And, and indeed it will. Even years later, when Babylon comes and exiles the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, God eventually will bring judgment upon Babylon. It's like I often tell my children, your sibling being wrong doesn't make you right. You can both be wrong, right? And you both get disciplined. So just because Israel is wrong and a foreign nation is being used as a means of punishment against them, doesn't make Babylon or Assyria virtuous or righteous. It just means that our God is sovereign. So what does the vine need? Well, first, the psalmist says that their need begins uh, with God, of course, but for God to do something, to once again have compassionate regard and concern for his people. And then he says that they need his hand to raise up the Son of Man. And verse 18 tells us the result that he expects. After God has compassionate regard for his people in the Son of Man, then the people will no longer turn away from their God. Then they will have life, even eternal life, and will worship the Lord. And no doubt, we, uh, we, uh, this, this passage, you know, it's, there's no way to absolutely confirm this, but... I think uh, I feel pretty confident saying that it seems as though Jesus had this very passage in mind in John chapter 15, where he identified himself as the true vine. In John 15, verses 1 through 11, Jesus declares himself to be the vine and his father to be the vine dresser. I'm not going to read the passage specifically, but this is a crucial development uh, for the vine of the people of God will not survive on its own. The people of God are too weak, too sinful, too naturally idolatrous and prideful to make it on their own. Israel was pictured in the Old Testament, interestingly enough, as the Son of God, and uh, specifically even in, uh, the, by the prophet Hosea. Uh, and, um, but then came the true Son of God to do what Israel could not do. 
and to make all who believed in Jesus into sons of God and children. Well, here is a similar picture. A similar thing is happening here. Israel had been the vine, but here now is the true vine of God. The true vine of God that in whom all those who abide in him will bear fruit. Now, as we step back and kind of take a look at where we've covered, what does this mean for restoration, for something like revival in the church? It means that the path to restoration and revival only comes through the Son of Man. The Son of Man who does not simply, to re, who does not come simply to restore uh, the vine. Uh, my, uh, when I was working uh, as a landscaper, um, I worked for my uncle, and, and he would often go to the local plant nursery, and he would buy expensive plants that were dying and take them back, and he would nurse them back to health. And so he would buy $80, $100, $200 plants and get them real cheap for 10 15 20 bucks a piece because he would nurse them. He didn't get them all, but he was really good. And so he would nurse them back to health. And, and then, of course, he would charge his customers the full price and save, save the difference. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, good on him for doing that and being smart and being able to cut, uh, be able to cut costs for himself. Um, uh, but uh, th- this is not Jesus coming and restoring the sickly vine back to health. This is Jesus coming and identifying himself as the true vine, just as he is the true son of God, and that those who abide in him are brought into fellowship with God, receive eternal life, and are saved to worship God forever in very fulfillment of the psalmist's expectations here. And so as we rightly pray for revival and restoration of the people of God and the church today, we need to direct our prayers and our cries to the great shepherd, to our covenant king, to the true vine who is Jesus Christ. Let us humble ourselves before him as a sheep, as his subjects and his branches. Let us repent of our worldliness And make room for the new branches that are to be engrafted into the vine by the gospel. Let us always look to the face of Christ, for in it we will find the light and salvation we so desperately need in the darkness of the world in which we live. Restore us, O Lord God of hope. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Jesus we have the true vine, the true king, and the good shepherd. Father, we pray that we would follow the shepherd as his sheep, that we would submit to our king as his subject, that we would abide in the vine as he abides in us, that we would bear fruit for the sake of his name, for the glory of your grace and for the benefit of those around us, that they may taste and see that the Lord is good and that they may be brought in to the kingdom, into the fold, and engrafted into the vine. Father, we pray that you would bless your people. Give us wisdom to see our faults. Give us eyes to see, but not despair. And Lord, may may you renew us. May you turn us back. 
May you restore us. May you cause us to repent and trust again. And may you do a great work of revival in your church and even in our nation, we pray, that sinners would turn and find their salvation in the great God of glory and mercy in Jesus Christ. We pray this for the sake of your name, for the joy of your people. And we pray it in the name of our wonderful Savior, Jesus. Amen.